0: Hello, OpStars. I'm Ashley, producer at the OpStars podcast. We hope you'll join us and the rest of the community at the seventh annual OpStars conference on September 21st and 22nd in San Francisco during Dreamforce. We've been virtual the last two years, but we are so excited to be back in person at the San Francisco Mint this year. Go to ops-stars.com to find out more about the speakers, sessions, and click on register now to join us. And by the way, it's free. I hope to see you there.
1: The better approach is to know more about their context and leverage it, you know, use every signal that they give and earn every signal that they give you. There's plenty of ways that you can help a buyer out once you know more about their context, whether that's through content or whether it's through benchmarking. There's just a thousand different things that are not that easy to pull together. There's, it's sort of like these thousand points that you're trying to keep track of at the same time. and however many of those you can leverage as they look like that best customer. That's what's important to do for personalization. It's it's really about prioritization.
0: Welcome to the OpStars podcast. We host authentic conversations with revenue operations professionals running the show behind the scenes. Holding things together, doing whatever it takes to innovate to solve problems, build processes, and manage the data to build a modern revenue engine that powers a great buyer experience. I'm your host, Rachel McBrarity. Hello, it's Rachel, CCO of Lean Data. Welcome to today's episode where I'm joined by Maura Ginty, Marketing Advisor and Fractional CMO at Bridge and Maeve Consulting. Welcome, Maura. Thank you. Great to be here. In your role at Bridge & Mave, you help seed startups to publicly traded companies, build marketing programs, revenue frameworks, marketing plans, strategies. I know you're a strong advocate of data-driven marketing and for putting customer needs at the heart of everything that a company does, which I just love. Looking forward to talking to you today about what does it mean to be more data-driven in marketing and get your perspective on how can companies do a better job identifying maybe the right counts to focus on and how to personalize experiences to win those customers. But let's start first by getting some highlights of your career journey.
1: Oh, absolutely. So I started back in the bronze age of digital marketing. My first job out of college was at internet.com. That was quite a ways ago. I still keep in touch with some of the original crew. And it's everything from those early days where I was focused on content. My title was International Editor. But then you really had to be able to hand code your own web pages. You had to learn content management systems just as they were being built. You had to learn website analytics just as those tools were first starting to emerge. So you had to have this sort of curiosity and flexibility and constant willingness to learn, which is what I I love about working in digital and in marketing. And it went from there all the way through a few different things. I have an occasional addiction to the travel industry. So I worked at Lonely Planet for a little while. I worked in an adventure travel company called GOX. So I've done a couple of forays there, but primarily it's been in the tech industry, just really in through digital, understanding what customers are looking for, trying to have as much empathy as possible. And I would say just figuring out how to pilot, test, learn fast, cover every angle. The the brainstorming never ends in marketing these days, especially when you have more and more capacity to understand your audience and to see what steps they take on the buying journey. So I had a great run for almost five years at Autodesk which was incredible at the time. They were one of the first companies going from the old software mail, mail it out to the subscription model, which was a huge reinvention for them. And they pulled it off really well. And then after that, I really wanted to see how marketing could be applied to smaller companies. So that was when I joined the Adventure Travel Company. And from there to Kissmetrics, to dozens of others, just knowing that the tests that we run, the pilots that we make, Um, the new programs that we start, seeing all of that uh, for the growth of the business has been the the most fun that one can have at at a technology company.
0: Excellent. Tell us, what is a fractional CMO?
1: Actually, it was at Autodesk where I started uh, with a digital marketing company on the side. So I was the principal there. And then... When, uh, when KissMetric closed shop, I ended up in as a fractional seMO pretty much the next week, which was an unexpected change for me, but really provided the kind of flexibility and constant change of scenery that I love.:
0: So you get to work across a number of different companies helping strategically. How do you think about the strategy, who you're going to go after, and do you use the data to determine that, or do you feel you need to really understand your best fit customers? and who you're going after, is there a strategic, a foundational component
1: before you jump into digital? Absolutely. And a lot of it just starts with listening and challenging your assumptions, which is a great thing that I felt I learned from the travel industry, actually. Just, you have to recognize what things are assumed, what truths are considered uncompromisable at the business. So you may think you're selling to one group. I've been at enough companies to see that that's wrong. So, the, there's a ton of assumptions that each company makes, but the markets are constantly moving. The buyer challenges are constantly moving. The competitive landscape is constantly moving. So, in that situation, you have to have just an incredible sense of curiosity and inability an to question yourself. If you're not questioning yourself and where you got to a conclusion and what contributed to that conclusion, then you're not really starting off with a customer at the center of it. So, I try actually to my latest approach to this is is that I try to be the customer first. So before I even join a company, I will try to engage as much as I can in their sales process before they find out that I'm around because I want to know what they're doing. I want to understand like what are the exact steps that a customer has to take in order to buy the product. So first I try to be the customer and then I try to get as much information as I can externally about the industry about the product itself. Like if I were just looking them up on my own, what would I find? If I know anyone who is a customer of theirs, I will start with my network of their customers before I start talking to the folks in-house, because I want to hear what my peers have to say about their experience with the product before I start, you know, really being part of the team and buying into those belief systems. So, the next step is once it's a little bit further along to really start to understand what the company, what the thought process is within the company. So there's the executive level, there's the board level, but there are also always hubs within a company. And there are always people who have their own curiosity and are constantly finding these things. And if they don't seek you out, you should be seeking them out. <laughs> the other ones are, are often overlooked because your customer success people and your BDRs, they are on phone conversations with your customers and prospects every single day. And these jobs are likely never going to be appreciated enough, but they have the pulse of what's going on with these different companies. And it's a great way of getting around the latest anecdote and trying to understand the difference between one account and one trend and one established fact. So that is typically the trajectory of where I like to start, but it's just a lot of research. You've got to love to read to be in marketing these days.
0: I really love that starting from that outside in, walk in the customer's shoes, so to speak, mm-hmm. and get their perspective and talking to the the folks on the front lines. You know, are there other other
1: methods that are more data-driven? Once I'm in-house, I feel that I'm really lucky to have been in-house with some really excellent data teams. And I learned so much from that experience. And to be really blunt, I feel like it took me years to figure out how to have that conversation. And just starting with the data team that was starting to emerge at Autodesk, which had some great players there, all the way through working most recently at Mode Analytics, which is built by data, <laughs> data analysts. So all of that trajectory has really been, how do you have that conversation? How do you uh, use their analytical expertise and your domain expertise to get to the right questions and answers and to look at what information you find without jumping too quickly to, to a bias, an assumption, or an answer before you've got the total picture? So figuring out how to ask those questions. Um, And I'll give some examples here. So what I tend to like to do is to look at things like product usage, things like NPS, look at contract expansion, look at a few factors that show that there's, there's a healthy product market fit with this account. And so when you start to see those patterns, a bigger story emerges. When you start to look at the actions that they take and you start to look at them a little bit more individually, you're not really getting at personalization quite yet, but you're looking at the different context of company size. You're looking at geography. You're looking at vertical. Uh, You're looking at buyer role, buyer title, and what that tells you about whether the purchase was a frontline decision or a top-down decision. There are so many different styles and ways that those factors can impact decision-making to try to emerge those patterns, you need, uh, you need a healthy amount of, of expertise from multiple angles. So, and, and you need to understand also what it means for the, the buyer at hand. So, for example, everyone is really concerned about different forms of product usage. And low product usage can be that they're just getting enough of what they want. Medium product usage is, is is harder to interpret. High product usage could mean that they're leveraging the product really well, or that they're hitting walls. And those two things can look exactly the same. So you dig into a few of those factors. You looked at uh, multiple sets of, of net promoters for, and maybe you start to figure out how, how the people who interact with the accounts can start asking a different type of question to really understand the context. The more context you have, the better your marketing is going to be.
0: So that helps you to determine that, that best fit customer go out and find Mm -hmm. more love that customer base is full of such great data
1: absolutely and then you have the the one lost analysis so you start with the customer base because then you can try to figure out like where the best fits how are they using the product what do they really value about the product and then there's the whole side conversation about value-based pricing which is really important for every business to figure out too and then you go back to well, well, what is the buyer journey like? Is, is the buyer journey that we're insisting upon, is that matching the way our customer wants to buy? Do they want more product-led growth? How many conversations do they want with a salesperson? How much technical assistance do they need? How much implementation will they really require? Those are all different answers depending on, again, size of the company, <laughs> the role of the buyer. If the buyer is different than the person who's going to implement it, there are so many different factors there that can really cause a completely different answer. Yeah. So there's the context of the customer and then the context of, the, of how they buy.
0: So I'm, I'm kind of curious on that front, when we think about there's the account and the account behaviors and what we think the product mm-hmm. is delivering into that account. And then there's the individual. Do you often see a relationship between how that individual wants to buy in the company they work for? Or are those two separate things.
1: Yeah. That's where personalization gets really tricky because there is individual and then there is company culture. And you see both, right? You see companies that really see the need for a product and will keep it beyond any individual champion. And then you see individual champions who will bring in their toolkit, whatever business they go to. So you have, you have CMOs who will go in and they will bring in the same marketing tech stack every single time. And they may evolve it once every couple of years. They'll, they'll bring something new and they'll throw in something else. They'll try something different. But there's, there is that sort of account, which is the company culture. What are they looking for? What are they prioritizing? How do they engage in technology? How carefully do they track their operating expenses? There are a ton of things like that. Do they require different levels of security or di- different levels of approval? Do they trust their frontline to make purchases and to what amount? There are just dozens and dozens of questions like that that are, that are really company culture. But you have to figure out whether it's one or the other. The other interesting thing about some roles, and I think marketing is one of those, where there's a rapid seat change and, and people will come and go from companies really, really quickly And if you're depending on that individual advocate or champion, the deal is lost as soon as they leave. And and that's not the best situation. You want that depth of account penetration and you really have to use all the signals at your disposal to be able to get to it. So as you
0: go through disseminating all this information, what does it end up looking like? I know it's a very tactical question, but what does it end up looking like so that you can action it?
1: I think it ends up looking like very, very different Things at different companies because there is like this culture component to how you handle it. I, I've seen it get so detailed to where there's a persona and the persona has a name and the persona has 50 plus characteristics and traits about them. And never was it so depressing as when I was at Lonely Planet. And I realized that I'd gone from like global nomad to sort of the, the urban weekend warrior. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, that is me. It was a sad moment, but When you see different personas of digital managers, if you go too far too deep and and you're worried too much about whether you've given them the right label, like the right brand of handbag that they would prefer to carry, then you've probably gone a little too far. You've, You've sort of taken your persona a little too seriously. And the risk is that you could alienate someone who fits just as well, but doesn't dress the same, for lack of a better metaphor. So the persona is one version. I think. I'm evolving my thinking around that where persona is really as relevant without the use case. There's the persona, but then there's what are they trying to get done at the end of the day? What's the problem that this person was asked to solve? And sometimes that is easier as a spreadsheet because you have at least a set of signals. The most important thing, whether it's a PowerPoint with a list of names, or whether it's a spreadsheet that talks about more specifics around company size, what their tech stack is, what vertical they're in, and how many content pieces they download before they want to engage in a sales conversation. Those are all signals to track. I've worked at businesses where the sense of ecosystem was so strong that you could prioritize the lead based on what other things were in the tech stack. All of these are signals. And it's how you tie them together in your tech stack to be able to take the best use of those signals and to minimize unnecessary damage and fallout to the conversion of each stage as they go through the sales funnel.
0: What does personalization mean and why do you think it's important to personalize the experience?
1: I think it is important to personalize it. I just I get concerned because I feel like personalization sometimes goes too far and it's very easy to worry about whether personalization is a hit or a miss. So I get I get 5 emails a day because of the nature of the fractional CMO role, I get five emails a day for companies that I either no longer work for, or that I'm not the buyer for. <laughs> but they're trying. And, and I can tell from the way they've structured this email that this email has gone out to 100 people that day. So there's this sort of mass effort. And the push for the mass effort is really something that happens with these incredibly ambitious revenue goals. So if you've got these really amazing, amazingly ambitious revenue goals, then you're pushing people towards volume, right? You're you're pushing for massive volume outreach all the time. And it's gotten to the point where that tactic has been copied so many different times that it's not responsive. There's a reason that email open rates have gone down substantially year after year after year. We just abuse email over the decades. The better approach is to know more about their context and leverage it. You know, use every signal that they give and earn every signal that they give you. There's plenty of ways that you can help a buyer out once you know more about their context, whether that's through content or whether it's through benchmarking. There's a thousand different things that are not that easy to pull together. It's sort of like these thousand points that you're trying to keep track of at the same time. And however many of those you can leverage. As, as they look like that best customer. That's what's important to do for personalization. It's really about prioritization.
0: Sounds like timing when yes. it makes sense for them. And rather than blast emails out, they're hoping something sticks. If there's any way to get
1: the yeah. signal
0: that it's the right time and the right fit. But we don't often think about that. I really like that.
1: We really don't. So that's what I meant. Like I, I like to go outside in because once you're in with your own tribe of people at your company, you start to prioritize where we are in the quarter, like, Oh, what do we need to do to make the number this quarter? And then you're shifting your tactics to what moves faster for you and not what's right for the customer. And that's, that's a dangerous game to get in because then you're just commoditizing, you're throwing out deals, you're discounting too fast. There's a lot of bad habits that come from that, that are great in the short term, but horrible in the long term. So The the more you know, the more you can prioritize. And that's why you start with looking at the customer. If you start by looking at what a a really good customer fit is, then you know who to prioritize as these accounts come in. You know that this is the group that really requires the attention of personalization. It requires as many different levers and using as much context as you can to be effective. Because you know this could be a great partnership for both sides. And the rest of it is prioritizing uh, what you know and don't know. If you, if you don't know much, then figure out what ways you can find out. Figure out how you can be asking questions, how you can be learning. The, the worst thing you can be doing is having your BER, your AE, and your sales engineer ask the same set of questions three times before they can even see a demo. That's a horrible experience for a customer. Like, they must feel pretty, pretty annoyed that they ever clicked on a schedule a demo, but <laughs> they thought they were going to get that instant. So we, we all know that that's how it happens, but there are going to be plenty of accounts over time across all industries that will want a conversation and that will not. That's why we're seeing such a change with product-led growth, because there is a growing population of people who wants minimal contact with sales which somehow also still survive this big switch to inside sales. (laughs) So so sales, of course, is truly resilient. There's always going to be a need for that consultative approach. There's always going to be need to pull all the different parties together and hustle through the paperwork. It's not that sales is going away, but there's going to be different levels of sales engagement for different products, different company types and different verticals. It's all about context
0: what I'm hearing here, it's about prioritization, using data to sense the right time, going after the right customer. Yeah. But it's something that you almost have to prove because it's really hard to change the, the volume habit, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. It is. The, the volume habit is the worst thing to change. And when you think about it, if you know what a successful customer looks like, and you can identify 50 lookalikes do you really want to keep that same large, larger average for that group? Do you really want a 30% conversion for people who look just like your existing customers? That's laughable. <laughs> I bet that would be a failure. But you know, if you have a higher percentage in that group, that allows you to leverage these volume plays in other places. It's not like there's no place for mass outreach. Marketing is all about like starting out with brand awareness and trying to get your name out to as many people as you can and getting that recognition, but that doesn't mean you pummel them with five emails a day so they remember your name and irritation. So
0: what is what are some of the biggest challenges you see in really having organizations figure out their correct segments and then move toward more personalized approach?
1: I think there's a couple things that are hard. I was I was thinking about this (laughs) this morning. I think one of the hardest things is that it's so easy to fall in love with your own company and your own product. And it's so hard to recognize that there may be a limited space for that product to thrive. It's hard to see that not everyone is going to benefit by buying what you're selling. And it's not a failure either. It's just that we've built this model of constant aggressive growth. That's really what the, a lot of tech, a lot of the venture capital principle, a lot of the the multipliers are all based on this high potential for massive, rapid growth. And while those things are possible and they happen easily. (laughs) When you have that very rare product market fit, it is not normal. And and it's so easy to want to be one of those. It's so easy to want to be Slack or to want to be one of the the dozens, but that causes hundreds of other companies to go under because they're so in love with their own product and idea that they're not willing to reshape it based on market changes. They're not willing. To think through which customer they should be serving, because everybody wants to go up market to enterprise. So there's there's a lot of peril in different versions of, of falling in love with our own ideas.
0: I think when you start out, you are trying to figure out your market fit. But what are the challenges to try to get a company to shift gears and go? Yeah, I do have to define this best fit customer and design this experience. Yeah. There's probably a point where you start off with just yeah, you're not quite sure, but as you mature, you need to develop more rigor. Is there a challenge in making that transition? And I would assume you might be brought in to help companies make that transition.
1: Yeah, it's finding that, you know, establishing that pattern of product market fit at the beginning. But this is the other way that you can fall in love with your own idea is that you don't recognize that the landscape changed. You you launched a new product. It may not fit the same way. You You feel like there's the sense of that once you've started to find evidence of product market fit, that that is then established forever, and that is finite. You you can establish product market fit, and it will last until there are new entrants or other exits or other expansions. Until there's a recession or maybe a pandemic, maybe there's a new market that you enter that has completely different requirements. But because you did so well in the first market, it's so hard to to try to you see so many companies that are even already really successful run up against that wall because it's so incomprehensible that a new market is starting all over again. So there there are so many ways that you have to start all over again. And if you don't have the curiosity to, to listen and research and investigate and experiment, then it's just sort of a passing fad.
0: What are the early warning signs that you might sense to know that you're going to be hitting that wall?
1: I think your customers will start to tell you. That's what I've seen. If you have a good set of product market fit, you're going to hear from people. They're going to start leaving, but they're going to tell you before they start leaving. There's also a lot that can be recovered unexpectedly. Like You may enter a new market and you may be unsure about how to pursue it. But if you're flexible and you go back to to that position of learning, you may discover new ways that an acquisition could work or new markets where, where a product can really thrive. And that can be by location, or it can be selling to a completely different audience. I, I remember doing a project for one company where they had been selling to agencies. And then out of nowhere, all of these accounting firms just fell in love with them. This The software works so well for accountants, which was really lucky because it's a this icp is it's nationally certified and registered they have very consistent role maybe like you you know where to find these people There are established lists like that is that is a lucky situation so you, you it may not be the audience you thought you were going after but you have to be willing to be open-minded about it and then wonderful things can happen if, if you evolve with your customer base instead of denying what's happening
0: So do you build this capability in your own company? Do you have as part of your operations team? Do you need to hire consultants like yourself? Can you do this for yourself? Can you reevaluate?
1: I think you can. I think you can. I think it's tricky because these are a lot of ideas that people see when they first join. And the hardest part about strategy is figuring out the timing. There's so much about timing that plays into your marketing goals quarter after quarter, year after year. So I think it's a chance of revisiting those ideas, making sure that the people who join are sharing their, their ideas, that they have a welcome forum to question what's been established and to, and to pull together a business case for new types of experiments and, and for there to be that larger cultural forgiveness that marketing is going to have to fail a certain percentage of the time for marketing overall to be successful. And again, it's, it's trust, trust in the people who know the domain expertise as well as the numbers. Like RevOps is in, in the middle of that because they see what can be holding up the buyer journey. They can see what might be holding up the prospect education, and they can see these drop-offs as well as feedback all the information from the different front lines and from these successful customers. like They're at the nerve center of all of it. So there is a way to do that in-house. And it's just a question of whether you've created a culture where everyone can question things or if you need to bring someone in from outside who, who has enough familiarity but has fresh eyes and has been asked to discover these things.
0: Makes sense. Business benefits of focusing on a key segment, driving toward the more strategic outreach to clients. What have you seen when companies are Consistently revisiting their strategy. Is it night and day? What do you see as the, the win here?
1: I think it just starts to click. It's a very boring way of describing it in some ways, but, but you just start to, you, success builds on success. So not everything that you ever ask for can happen. Like I, I would say that my batting average for any project, uh, set of projects I propose is probably 50 50 on a great day. It means I've had to leave half of them on the table and never, never, never have them show up, which is, which is fine. I I, like part of my job is the volume of ideas as well. So I think when you start to see those successes, you start to see that, that temperature change, you start to see more ideas come forward. And then it, it creates a virtuous cycle of not just having an openness to ideas, but having these direct and necessary conversations about how the business prioritizes what they want to do. And I am one of many people who I'm fine if you shoot down my idea. I just don't, I need to know why, and I need to know when to try again. (laughs) Like I, as long as that prioritization is clear, I think you end up with a pretty healthy environment and no company is perfect. No decision is perfect. But one thing that I do see as a a fractional CMO is that there's this question around marketing and is the marketing strategy right? Are the marketers doing the right thing? There's just uh, typically some degree of a question mark hanging over the marketing department and whether they're approaching things right. It's a great, it's a great function to Monday morning quarterback. And the difference is that when I see all of these different companies in a bigger volume, The group is typically not aware of the larger business decisions that they're not making that are necessary for marketing effectiveness. So the more that the larger group can push and commit to these business decisions and business priorities, and not 20 of them, like a handful of them. And when one of those decisions has to, when when a new thing comes in, one of those has to move out. So it's, it's a very pragmatic approach to prioritizing business strategy. And then the marketing will follow because your business case has to point to one of those business strategies. And if it doesn't, then you know your answer and you know your priority and you have to wait for the timing. So it's that kind of thing. When I, when I look and I do an assessment of a marketing department now, uh, when I do the write-up, typically something between a third and a half of it is ambiguous business decisions around go-to-market that make it harder for any individual marketer, whether they're an executive or an individual contributor to know what the right next step is. So when you have that, you're at a better place to test, invest, and then really implement at scale. Excellent.
0: Great advice. And I understand what you're saying. It does just click when you work back from the customer and you have your go-to-market strategy alignment, Mm -hmm. you know, your business goals and marketing serves those. Well said.
1: I think the other thing is like, I think it's also funny to think about all the different level, all the different things that can be neglected. I can think of three times when I've seen my competitor change their pricing strategy to remove the expectation of customer success, and I'm so happy when they do that because I love working at companies that have great customer success, and when I can say. Look at all the awards that our team has won for our, our excellent implementation, our excellent response rate, our excellent support, our excellent service. And you compare that to someone who has a, repu, a bigger player that has a reputation for neglect. <laughs> then, you know, those are, there's so many angles like that a smaller company can take uh, to really appeal to, to the right buyer. Well,
0: that, that was excellent, Maura. Thank you so much. I have a couple of final questions in closing. The first is advice for someone who's just about to start in an operations role.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. This is, yeah, the marketing operations role is so much fun. It's terrifying because there are so many things that can go wrong while you're not looking. <laughs> There's so many things that can become disconnected overnight. There are so many things that other people have access to where if they flip a switch and you don't know, it can take weeks to find out and you're just trying to figure out why something wasn't working. The setup is the hard part. And, and all of that, that hard labor about setting things up well the first time or the second time or the third time, it is grueling work it's a lot of attention to detail that it takes a certain personality to have it takes a level of responsibility that many people don't feel towards their jobs but the payoff is tremendous because if you have all of these gauges instrumented right then you are like i like i said before you are that nerve center of the go-to-market universe. You're one of the only sources that can legitimately with numbers and mapping and evidence, look at the entire buying cycle from the first hello through like expansion. And you're the only one who can tie those things together in any kind of coherent patternized way. And that is such a great basis for a career because you've got to have that, that curiosity that I'm trying describing about finding the right the right customer, knowing how to talk to them and be available for them, and 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 provide value to them—that's what the revenue ops person can see. And there can be tr- there can be such incredible changes driven from this department because you're 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 holding everyone to a sense of responsibility. You're holding everyone to handoffs and agreements that are all intended to support the customer. So I think it's just incredible role, and I think it's just hard to remember. All the potential that's there when you're struggling to figure out <laughs> why this form isn't, isn't passing over, right? <laughs> those are, those are crazy making scenarios. But when you step back from those, that sort of mechanical toil, like the view that you have is incredible.
0: That's terrific advice. It is very exciting time in revenue operations overall and the transformation of those roles is super exciting yeah. career yeah. starting point.
1: Especially now, because it sounds really weird that this is a great role in a recession. But this is when patterns are changing. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much uncertainty right now. And what you're going to see is buyer your hesitation. You're going to see consolidation because there's been this proliferation of tech, and the rev person is in such a good place to be able to see that. Like the business case now has to be really bulletproof, and, and ROI has to be so tangible, and. And it's really RevOps that has like the exact line of sight on all of it.
0: Excellent. And final question, who in the world of operations would you most
1: like to take to lunch? That is a hard question. There are so many good people in operations. I think, yes, I would have to say uh, Greg at Cloud Kettle, just because I know we like the same restaurants. Such a cheating question.
0: (laughs) I believe he said you as well. So I think I'm going to have to make that happen.
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll pick out the rest of them. They're opening up Cyrus again
0: in, in, in the Bay Area. So. Okay, a deal. I'll take both of you to lunch.
1: <laughs> Sold. All
0: right, thank you, Mara. This was excellent. I really appreciate you sharing your insights and perspective. It's so great to catch up with you as well. Great, have a great day. The Upstars Podcast is brought to you by Lean Data. To find out more about us and our suite of Salesforce-native products for marketing, sales, and revenue operations, head to leandata.com and then make sure to search for OpStars in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at OpStars and Lean Data, thanks for listening.